Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, did the Liberals accomplish anything in the eyes of Canadians with the budget yesterday? And what decisions were made in this budget that addressed the biggest concerns for Canadians? And do intelligence agencies always get it right? Phil Gursky, the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Finance Minister Christian Freeland attempting to walk the line between fighting inflation and saving for a rainy day. Our country has a proud tradition of fiscal responsibility. That is the tradition we are determined to uphold. The headline measure up to a $234 increase to the GST tax credit to help low-income Canadians fight inflation. The Liberals are billing it as a one-time grocery rebate, but it can be spent anywhere. Freeland also announcing $4 billion for Indigenous housing and billions in tax credits for clean tech, critical minerals, and carbon capture and storage. A key priority of the NDP Liberals' supply and confidence deal also outlined. The Liberals promising a dental care insurance program for Canadian families making less than $90,000 a year will be in place by the end of 2023. But the cost of that program has more than doubled, coming in at $13 billion over the next five years. Lots to talk about, about the uh, budget and the announcement by uh, Finance Minister Christy Freeland uh, yesterday. A mixed reaction, as you might expect from budgets. Uh, you know, Pierre Picolio, of course, does not like it. Uh, looks like Jagmeet Singh, the NDP uh, leader, will support the budget, and uh, which means the government will survive. That's uh, that's one story, one headline. But how is it going to impact the rest of us? How is it going to impact you and me and the expectations that we had? To uh, talk about that, please to welcome back to the program, uh, Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, uh, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about this and, and the expectations, I guess. And uh, there's there's a lot to, to dissect here uh, from the business standpoint, from the green energy standpoint. Uh, and maybe we'll start there and then we'll talk about uh, how it's averaging uh, with uh, the everyday Canadians who are looking for some relief here. But uh, the budget, I thought, was a pretty strong reflection of exactly what uh, the, uh, the government was talking about uh, last week during the presidential visit here, about their commitment to green energy and, and electronic vehicles. Yeah, what you saw was uh, the government having a, a as strong as a possible. I mean, it's always difficult with the United States. You know, they had the fiscal power that very probably only two other countries could match. But Canada had to step up, and the federal government had to step up in terms of delivering sort of this green economy transformation type of support, financial incentives, whether tax credits and others, uh, to help ensure that capital is staying in Canada and that it's being invested in Canada. Uh, you'd have seen, you know, companies are, are, are across the board sort of really concerned that the U.S. is going to attract all this sort of investment into, you know, electrification, uh, hydrogen, carbon capture, you know, technologies that uh, and opportunities for sort of solidifying Canada's place were that was sort of the threat. And so this attempt and sort of delivery of uh, of the components of this budget for tax credits and others well, should help alleviate a lot of the stresses that many uh, many investors and companies that are hoping to make that sort of big capital investment can feel confident to make that investment here in Canada because there is sort of a, the long-term benefits here as we sort of transition towards a, a green economy. So I think overall, I think that was a, a very effective delivery to the best of Canada's fiscal abilities that they could have done. 
I guess we have to keep in mind, I mean, in as much as, you know, President Biden and the Prime Minister last week kept talking about being partners and friends, etc., they're still competitors when it comes to attracting these businesses. And, and we've got to keep that in mind. We need to keep that competitive edge, don't we? Oh, for sure. Look, there are cousins to the South. And so I'm sure for every person out there, you know, they, they don't they have a, you know, a friendly rivalry with their cousin for, for a variety of things. And just like us, we want to make sure we had the best things. We want to have, you know, a good economy, good jobs, good opportunities across, you know, uh, you know, coast to coast to coast. So this is this is this that attempt. And now look, overall, we're also a very interconnected economy, and so some of these investments are going to have benefits on both sides of the border. For example, the critical mineral space. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canada is 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 blessed with a lot of very, very highly valuable critical minerals like cobalt and copper and others. So being able to extract that, which is, you know, mining is also very expensive. There's an environmental component, everything else that goes with it. Getting that minerals out of the ground is very important. Getting them processed and then getting into the very plants, which... Canada is securing the investments for battery plants and, and EVs that will all supply that. And so when, when that sort of full end to end supply chain is delivered, Canada is set for the future and set for the future with sort of the integrated economy of the United States. Uh, it was no coincidence, I, I guess, uh, when we looked at the, the visual yesterday, uh, that uh, Christian Freeland was wearing a green outfit. The, the prime minister had a green tie. Uh, that that seemed to be the theme of this budget, didn't it? Uh, green energy and 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 green economy moving forward. Yeah, look. So there's like <clears throat> there's three components that this budget had. You know, obviously the green economy transformation piece was one. The other was around affordability measures, which we'll get to, and then the other was on healthcare. Healthcare, a lot of what was uh, laid out in the budget was already announced, which is the Canada Health Transfer, which you Mm -hmm. and I have talked a lot about already. So that sort of had its moment basically for an entire month of February because it was announced back in February 7th. And now this sort of theme is like you're trying to show that we're both economy and the environment sort of tied together. You know, this is a legacy item for the prime ministers around the environment. So what better way than finally being able to mesh together uh, a very comprehensive investment strategy, industrial policy that will help drive Canada forward in, in this in this space. So uh, I think the the symbolism was was well suited, but also that is the key message. You know, we are in a high inflation environment, so they had to make sure that the the message is clear that we are doing this to protect the jobs here, to grow the next wave of jobs and to be part of the this this transformation going around the world around electrification and, and, and green economy. So with that in mind, then, uh, and I guess this is one of the key elements of this whole thing, uh, because this was talked about uh, time and time again, I guess, last week during uh, Biden's visit to Ottawa, uh, is with the Clean Energy Act that they have passed down there. Uh, if we didn't do this, uh, we're pretty much falling out of the picture here when it comes to future economic growth uh, vis-a-vis green economies, etc. Uh, not just here, but of course, in Europe and in the UK as well. Yeah, we had to respond. There was no doubt about it. Uh, sectors across the, the spectrum, like whether in oil and gas, whether in clean energy, whether in hydrogen, whether in uh, autom- automotive and, and you know mining and such, all were clamoring for the need to help achieve uh, competitiveness because there's only so much capital out there to invest in, in projects, both for the short, medium, and long term. And we're in an age of of an extreme focus on 
this sort of transformation of the economy, transformation of our industrial policy, and and really trying to hone in on securing the investments that will set the stage for the next 10, 20, 30 years. You don't get those opportunities every uh, every time. We didn't have those in the 90s. We didn't have that really in the 80s. Didn't really have that in the 2000s unless you're talking about the, the dot-com, which has also had its birth, but then sort of the tech tech innovation, that space that took. But that's sort of saturated now. So you need to cultivate the next uh, next sort of economic wave that is going in. And right now, the world is competing for this. And so Canada can be on the sidelines. If you are, then you will have missed the complete boat and will never have an opportunity like this ever again. So this is from a business standpoint, and, and th- this is what we've heard from a number of the business leaders. Uh, they're pretty much giving this a thumbs up, not enthusiastically, but they think, yeah, this is this is the right direction that we're charting. But let's, if we could, shift the focus for a few minutes to what everyday Canadians are going to, to be looking for out of this. And, and uh, just as I think there was a lot of disappointment last week with the provincial budget here in Ontario that didn't really do much for middle income people, uh, there's some I think the same feeling here, too. I mean, there is help here for low-income Canadians uh, with the grocery credit that they're going to get and the check act, the check that they're going to get, too. Uh, but for other folks that, that are still dealing with inflation and, and high interest rates, et cetera, not a whole lot here. Yeah, it's very tough. It's super tough uh, in this high inflation environment because the cost of everything is already going up from just the goods, but then you have the increasing interest rates uh, that are squeezing Canadians more and more, particularly around their mortgages and, and debt payments. So the government has to be very careful that you don't further inflame that by putting more money into the market that people will spend the very thing that the Bank of Canada is trying to you know, tamper down inflation. It's still high, even though it's been trending downward, but grocery inflation is still very, very high. And so there, there is this budget you know, to try and find the delicate balance was a like let's let's ensure that the most vulnerable in terms of income are supported. So the GST rebate really is targeted towards them. But for sort of the middle income, depending on where you are, and I think you know, obviously not all benefited entirely, but there's some. For example, uh, those who want to save up for a home, you know, that will, uh, the tax-free home savings account is going to launch April 1st, which is announced last year, but officially coming into play. You know, this target is towards students, you know, allowing more RESP contributions to be rolled out, uh, TFSA benefits. Like there are, there are other mechanisms which allowing Canadians to save or utilize their savings for sort of long-term benefit. And, and that may not do enough for Canadians today for all, but it is the delicate balance of that, you know, they need to, they need to ensure that they're not worsening this inflation uh, crisis further. Uh, they need to tamper down and, and get it back to control as fast as possible. And it's a difficult thing for any government to do. Inflation is sort of a kryptonite for a lot of governments because it, it really is difficult to to sort of switch, turn the switch on and say, okay, we can fix inflation right away. It can take months and months and months, which we're seeing right now. Well, and we saw that last week in the provincial budget, didn't we, Mohammed? I mean, and this is that this is progressive conservative government here in Ontario, and and they got the same you know, email that you and I got, and and that the prime minister got is he from the Bank of Canada. In other words, stop spending so much money; you're driving inflation up. And and the Ford government's gone crazy. I mean, this, they're spending more now than the Wynn government did. So it's it's you know it's very very easy for governments to talk the talk. It's a lot more difficult for them uh, to walk the walk, especially. 
I would think in a minority situation like this, where at some point, you know, this government has to appease the NDP uh, section that, that are saying, hey, dental plan, uh, this, that, pharmacare. Uh, if they don't get that, uh, then, you know, they risk losing government. And, and where does that leave them? And where does that leave the country? Well, into another election. And it seems as if uh, what they have included in this budget uh, in that regard is is going to satisfy the NDP and they'll probably support the budget. Yeah, the, the NDP should support this budget. No, I have no concern about that. Um, they got their big dental care win, which ended up being almost double the projected cost. So uh, that that added into the, the added into the deficit number. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, there had to have been some pocketbook related uh, items in here, which this does include some of those things. So people will be able to see, for example, also the junk fees um, that really, yeah. you know, just about everyone will to see, you know, a plane ticket. You know, you'll see that in, in other sort of invoices that people get uh, with all these different old charges. Those are, should be phased out eventually too. So. There, there will be other things that people will be able to see in their pocketbook, which is always the, the balance you always want. You want to do sort of the big picture stuff, but you also want to do things that really feel, can be seen visually or in the pocketbooks of you know, people's bank accounts and such, right? So um, maintaining that support with the NDP is, is critical. And so that's, you know, you, it's very clear throughout this budget that places which with the NDP want to uh, see movement on. We didn't see movement on pharmacare, and I don't expect to see much movement on that at least for the first half of this year, maybe I think depending on how discussions go, we'll we'll have more clarity near the end of the year if, if there is actual forward momentum on pharmacare. But overall, I think delicate balance, tough to, to sort of navigate the situation. And, and the government, I think, tried to find that balance because you could not not do anything. Um, but so they try to do as minimum as possible to reduce the impact on the inflation situation. Yeah, it's it's a balancing act to be sure, and uh, we're going to get some reaction, of course, from some of the others uh, that were there yesterday, uh, and some government reaction on this. Mohammed, great to get your perspective. I know it's a busy day for you. Thanks for taking some time for us today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mohammed Ali, Senior Consultant with Crestview Strategies, uh, with their take on uh, the federal budget. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're ensuring that we can continue to invest in Canadians and in the Canadian economy for years to come, just as we have done since 2015. Because we know that investments in Canadians are also investments in our economy. Finance Minister Christy Freeland, uh, part of her address uh, to the Commons yesterday with the federal budget. Uh, this is the Bill Kelly Show. Glad you're with us today on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, to give us some insight into uh, what is actually going into this document and how it's going to have an impact on you and me on our everyday lives, I'm uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Karina Gould, who is the MP for Burlington, also the Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development uh, in this federal government. Uh, Minister, great to have you back on the show. I know how busy it is. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Bill. Great to be with you, too. We were just talking about, uh, before you joined us, about the Balancing Act here. Uh, you want to get the economy going. We have to be competitive. And uh, as I was just mentioning to our previous guest, uh, a lot of, of what Minister Freeland talked about yesterday is very much a reflection and maybe uh, a, a response, I guess, to the American Green Energy Act. We have to stay competitive in that area, I think. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, one thing that I would say on that is that we do have a little bit of edge on the Americans in the sense that we have been laying the foundation and making investments for the last seven and a half years. 
Um, but we do need to make sure that we're competitive and we need to make sure that we have the ability to um, retain those investments here in Canada, but also to attract new ones. And, you know, for listeners in this area of the country, um, you know, the fact that we've been able to invest in green technology for steel producing and for the automotive sector is really important. And we got a really exciting announcement by Volkswagen that they're creating a battery plant um, in the St. Thomas area, which is, you know, really really exciting. And we want to keep those investments coming uh, to create those good jobs and sustain those good jobs over the long term. Well, because as we've talked about, especially in the auto sector, uh, if they choose to go someplace else and not here, uh, they're not going to come back when we start getting our act together here. This We have to start that now, I guess, to be competitive. The big question that I guess a lot of people have, though, and, and it's the same question I asked after the, the provincial budget last week, uh, those minerals aren't doing us any good in the ground. You've got to start mining them and start producing those. And I know that's what President Biden talked to the prime minister about. Uh, is, is there any hope here that we're going to get this done sooner than later? Because it seems to be a kind of in a holding pattern right now. Yeah. So, I mean, you're absolutely right in the sense that we have to get the entire supply chain going, right? And Canada is extraordinarily blessed because we can actually do everything from the mining to the final output in terms of battery production and green vehicles in Ontario, right? Um, and, you know, at a certain extent in other places around the country as well. So what this budget is really doing is putting forward a a comprehensive industrial strategy uh, for the green economy and the economy of the future. And so right from, you know, a critical mineral strategy uh, up to, you know, ensuring that we have the skills that are needed, making those investments. Um, what I'm really excited about, Bill, is that I think this is a budget that is setting Canada up for success in the 21st century. And that's wonderful news. And, you know, it's because we want to be prosperous going forward, but a lot of people concerned about the here and now, like today, mm, uh, you know, absolutely. Uh, going on over to Sobeys right after this and, you know, the, the price of chicken and the price of bread and the price of everything else and uh, interest rates. And it's a, it's a two-headed monster, of course, you know, inflation and interest rates these days. Uh, and you've got help in the budget here for low-income Canadians. There's, there's actually two or three very, I, I think, important programs here, including the, the grocery rebate that's uh, involved in this, but the, the middle class, you know, the the, the ones who are looking for help, they're impacted by this too. And there's not a whole lot here to seemingly help them. Well, so there's a few things in here that I think are worthwhile noting. So you mentioned the grocery rebate, which, you know, it's going to support 11 million Canadians, right? And this is really meaningful support for people at a time of high inflation. Though I should note that inflation has been falling steadily for the past eight months, and it's about 5.2%. And the Bank of Canada is projecting to get to about 26 uh, by the end of the year. So that's on the right track. And what Minister Freeland and the government were really working on in this budget was making sure that we didn't put measures in that would be inflationary and that would cause a reaction from the Bank of Canada to raise interest rates further. The Bank of Canada has kind of been in a holding position, which is a bit different than what we're seeing in the U.S., um, which should hopefully provide some relief uh, to Canadians. Um, but then there's another measure in here that I think is really important uh, for low-income Canadians, which is the automatic tax filing. Um, you know, in order to receive your benefits, whether it's Canada Child Benefit, whether it's Canada Workers Benefit, uh, the grocery rebate, you need to file taxes. And so, 
expanding for how many people taxes are filed automatically will actually mean they're going to get more money back from the government, which is a good thing. And for the middle class, um, you know, we've there's there's a measure in here that I think is really exciting, and I encourage people to a look at and then open up um, is the uh, tax free savings account for first time home buyers. Uh, it's quite generous. Uh, it's I think up to seven or eight thousand dollars a year that folks can uh, put into this tax free and and take out tax free, um, and I think will really help uh, people who are looking to get started uh, in terms of buying a house. Um, and it's going to become available um, on April 1st of this year. So that's quite exciting. And then there's a couple of other measures. Um, one about, you know, getting rid of junk fees. So those are the extra fees that you pay when you've bought an airline ticket, for example, and it doesn't include baggage and it doesn't include a whole bunch of other things. Uh, we're going to be working with regulatory agencies across the country to really crack down on these because they can add up really quickly. And then even though it wasn't in this budget, we're starting to feel the impacts, something you and I have spent a lot of time talking about, and that's childcare. Um, You know, with the 50% fee reductions that came into effect at the end of last year in Ontario, that's up to $8,500 a year in savings that families um, are getting if, you know, their children are in registered childcare. And I have to say that no matter where I am in the country. And in fact, you know, I was picking my son up uh, from school on Friday afternoon in Burlington and a mom stopped me in the parking lot to tell me like, you know, the difference that that has made in her family's life and the the extra breathing room that it's given them at a time when things are really expensive and how meaningful it was. So, you know, childcare wasn't in this budget, but it's something that's, you know, taking root now and is having a really positive effect for people. I think a lot of people were surprised by the money that's uh, being directed out to the dental plan as well, because, you know, Minister Freeland had said that, look, you know, we've got to be careful with spending. I know there were a lot of asks about, uh, you know, pharmacare and dental plans, et cetera, like this. Now, this is, again, going to be targeted to only a certain segment of the population, uh, which is good news for them. But, you know, again, Canadians are saying, what about now? But it, I'm getting the impression from from what the minister said yesterday and, and what you're telling us this morning, Karina, that you're kind of banking on the fact that the, the economy is going to self-correct by the end of the year. It's not going to be perfect, but it's not going to be where it is today in six or eight months. And, and that will, I guess, give us some relief in and of itself. Well, there's there's a little bit of that. I mean, you know, I think as we were mentioning, like it's, it's a balancing act, right? Like. I think the measures that we've put in place are targeted because we don't want them to be inflationary and they're supporting the people who need the most assistance right now. Doesn't mean everybody isn't feeling the squeeze, but we have to be careful that we, you know, we don't um, make it, you know, make it more challenging for for folks. And the dental plan, um, you know, is, is actually really exciting and because it's, because it's targeted, it's not inflationary, right? Um, you know, it's going to people who need to take advantage of these services but can't because of, you know, their financial situation. And if I can just share this fact with you, um, Bill, because I, I think it's really exciting. Since um, the first wave of the dental program came into effect in December of last year, we've had 240,000 children under the age of 12 that have now been able to go to the dentist. Um, So that's really exciting. And I think it shows how much of a need there was out there. 
And what we've committed to in this year's budget is to increase that availability for children under the age of 18, um, for seniors and people with disabilities with household incomes below $90,000 a year by the end of this year, and then move that to all households that are uninsured um, with regards to dental benefits um, who make under $90,000 a year. And that could be up to 9 million Canadians who currently don't have access uh, to dental care. And we know how linked dental care is to overall health. And so this is something that I think um, is A, really positive, but B, is also going to have, you know, um, additional impacts uh, in terms of healthcare provision overall, because for folks who don't go to the dentist to deal with something because they don't have the money to do it, they often end up in a merge uh, with a much more complex and complicated situation. So, you know, we were very thoughtful and careful about making sure the investments that we were making wouldn't be inflationary, but we're really helping people who need it the most right now. Well, and that was one of the concerns, too, to see how the Bank of Canada is going to respond. Uh, They are, as you say, on a a holding pattern right now, but uh, we'll see how they respond to this as well. Uh, We'll have to leave it there, Minister. Uh, Thanks, as always, for the time. Uh, Sure, more to come on this down the road. We'll we'll talk again, but thanks for uh, joining us today on a very busy day today. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. You too. Karina Gould, MP from Burlington, and of course, the uh, Federal Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We turn our attention back to, well, the the ongoing and and very important uh, topic of uh, possible foreign interventions in our political processes here in this country. Uh, That was big news a couple of days ago. We got sidetracked with budgets, both provincial and federal, but it's, it's back again. And uh, as it should be, because we need to get some answers on this. And there's an interesting uh, editorial piece by uh, Chantal Hubert in the Toronto Star a couple of days ago. Uh, the title of it is called Think Intelligence Agencies Always Get It Right. Here's Why You Should Be Skeptical. That was the title of the article. And she goes on to uh, uh, detail two or three different situations where that didn't really happen uh, the way that we anticipated that it would. And I wanted to get our next guest on to, uh, to talk about this. Phil Gursky, of course, is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and, of course, a former CSIS analyst. Uh, Phil, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for being with us today. Always a pleasure, Bill. How are you today, sir? I, I'm well. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming you read Chantelle Bear's piece in the Star the other day. What, as you read it, what was your reaction to, to, to the to the message? I guess she was giving here. Not surprisingly, Bill. Given my background, I was disappointed. I thought it was extremely one-sided. I thought it was biased. I thought it didn't really talk about what intelligence can and cannot do. And unfortunately, you know, it's funny, Bill, you talk about the, you know, this issue being sidetracked because of the budget. It's more, it's, it's bigger than that. It, we're now in a, in a situation where people such as Ms. Bear and, and other people who made public testimonies and even the government itself is indeed calling into question the whole intelligence apparatus in Canada as it pertains to the China interference issue and the, and the elections, as you said in your introduction. And as a consequence, it seems to be telling Canadians there's nothing to see here because the Intel agencies, i.e. CSIS, where I worked, uh, they're not trustworthy and they pass on information that's not been confirmed and therefore shouldn't be used to help in decision-making. That, to me, well, A, is wrong, not surprisingly, given, given the fact I spent 30 years in the business. And I, I think Canadians deserve a much more nuanced explanation for what intelligence is, what it can do, and, and what its pluses and minuses are. 
Well, as I was reading it uh, the other day, the, the th- first thing that came to my mind was something you told me, uh, and this is going back months, I guess now, Phil, uh, you said it's, it's their job to gather the information. Uh, what government does with it is, is their business. I mean, you know, CSIS doesn't make policy. And and yeah. and that's something that I think she's conflating here. That uh, you know they they could have got it wrong. Well, the, the information was there. Uh, how they disseminate that information and and how they want to interpret it is is up to the individual to a certain extent, isn't it? Absolutely. It's right in the thesis act. It says that thesis collects information. It can it processes it. It analyzes it. It tries to confirm reliability. It wraps it up with a nice bow to give the government in an advisory capacity. As you said, thesis doesn't make laws. It doesn't make arrests. It doesn't go to court. It doesn't tell the government what to do. It says, look, it, here's what we know, and we'll give you, you know, degrees of certainty with which we know that information. You add this to the pot of other information you're getting from other sources, and hopefully you'll find it useful in decision-making. And that's the whole purpose of having an intelligence organization. We here in Canada, dating back to its creation back in 1984, decided to separate law enforcement from security intelligence. Other countries don't do it the way. The FBI, for example, does both. But we decided to split off from the old RCMP security service. Um, and that's the role that CSIS plays. But that role has, I think, been called into question, not because of what Ms. Bear says, but because the information is inconvenient. And we know, and we've talked about this bill several times on the show, this issue over the Communist Party of China interference in our elections is inconvenient for the government, and they want it to go away. And one way to make it go away is say, well, we were never warned, which is what the prime minister says, or the information we couldn't use or it wasn't valued. And so as a consequence, this is a way for them to just pretend there's nothing, nothing to see here. Well, and she goes through a couple of examples, and I don't want to go through all of them here, but uh, that would be rather tedious. But she starts off uh, with, with Canada's decision, uh, Prime Minister Gretchen's decision uh, not to follow the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, into the invasion of Iraq. Uh, you know, we need a proof as a proof. I mean, he got a lot of, of criticism for that, and not just what he did, but the way it, which he tried to describe it. But that whole thing, that whole premise that she's writing about here was a scam. I mean, I, I'm sure you read, I have read Bob Woodward's book about uh, the, the, the invasion of Iraq by the Bush government. And uh, uh, the book is called Plan of Attack. And basically, Woodward found out that the whole thing was all, it was all fabricated. It was not bad intelligence. It was the way, it was the Dick Cheney's and the Donald Rumsfeld's, et cetera, basically concocting a reason to try to go in there. And they, they, you know, there was no foundation. They tried to hang it on, on intelligence agencies, but they really had no part in it. 100%. The, the um, intention and the plan to evade Iraq bill happened on September the 12th, 2001. It went yep. back that far. They wanted to find Iraq responsible, at least in part, for 9-11, which would justify going into Iraq in the first place. And you're absolutely right. The intelligence, uh, it was inconsistent. I, I saw the intelligence at the time, and I, I was actually asked when I was at CSIS, is there anything that you can, you know, find that links the 9-11 to al-Qaeda? And the answer was no. There was no link between al-Qaeda uh, and Iraq. Sorry, link Iraq to 9-11. Sorry, al-Qaeda was definitely involved. Um, yeah. There was no link between Iraq and, and 9-11, and I, and I said so. But the intelligence, uh, you know, the, you're right. It was used as an excuse for why the bad decision was made. But as you said, the Cheneys and Rumsfelds of this world, their mind was made up a long time before the invasion in March of 2003 to go into Iraq. You know, in, in sort of in hindsight, we said, well, they use bad intelligence. No, they just use whatever intelligence they wanted to justify a, a, a pre-adopted decision that was made a long time before the, the invasion actually took place. 
Well, exactly. And, and you know, so they came up with this fable about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which never existed, and they knew they didn't exist. Uh, and then, you know, sadly, they put poor, you know, Colin Powell up at the United Nations to yeah. try to, to carry the story yeah. over there. Uh, but you saw the stuff, and I'm glad that, you know, that you have that perspective on this, uh, because that it, it was not bad intelligence, but, you know, it's easy to say, hey, we they can't come back and defend themselves. They, you know, the CIA is not going to say, why, wait a second, here's the document, it wasn't us. Uh, so they know that they can get away with just pointing the finger at them. And 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 I guess this is what bothers me about this is, and I'm not suggesting that intelligence sources are, are perfect all the time. And then I don't think you've ever said that. I don't think any of no. them have ever said that. No. Uh, but but you know they do the best they can given the circumstances. And she goes back to also about the War Measures Act that uh, Pierre Trudeau instilled after the, uh, uh, the the kidnapping of James Cross and the murder of Pierre Laporte. Uh, and, you know, intimating that the intelligence they got then said there was going to be a large-scale uh, revolution in Quebec. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that information, but I do know that uh, a lot of people thought that way back in the time. I mean, they were blowing up mailboxes. They just murdered a cabinet minister. I mean, it was pretty rough times. I'm glad you raised that, Bill. And I, and I discussed the, you know, the SLQ crisis a lot in my most recent book. We've talked about the Peaceable Kingdom. Yeah, in fact, I, yeah. I talked to an RCMP officer who worked that case in the late 1960s. You know, we can go back and forth on, you know, suspension of liberties under the War Measures Act. That's a very serious, uh, you know, thing to use, just like the current Trudeau government, the Emergencies Act over the, con- the convoy. Let's not go down that path. Uh, the, and you pointed out very, very aptly. I mean, the SLQ had carried out hundreds of bombings in Montreal. They had killed six people before they killed Pierre Laporte. They kidnapped the UK representative. We didn't know how far they were going to go, but the, the fact remains is this was a violent organization that had already killed people. This wasn't something theoretical. This wasn't something, well, they might do this, but they had acted violently. They had taken innocent lives, and it was every expectation they would continue to do so to force the government to grant Quebec independence. Now, again, was the War Measures Act required? I, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a legal specialist, mm-hmm. but clearly something had to be done back then to stop the FLQ from its murderous campaign and saying that, you know, intelligence was wrong or that. Well, it wasn't wrong because, because again, this was a known terrorist group that was actually carrying out acts that were yeah, contrary to Canadian law. So, yeah, you know what, Bill, I'm always really skeptical of people that revisit history, you know, 40 or 50 years later and say, well, this was done wrong and that was done wrong. It's the heat of the moment. You're dealing with what you have. You're making decisions on the fly because you have to. And if nothing had been done in 1970, uh, in October of that year, who knows how long the FLQ would have considered the bomb and murder? I don't have those answers. I don't think anybody else does either. Well, you know, and to your point, again, I don't want to go into the convoy either, but uh, in the, uh, of course, inquiry about that, Rolo's finally, uh, his final statement on that was exactly that, wasn't it? He says, I, I don't think it met the threshold, but given the time and given what was going on at the time, it was probably the right thing to do. And and, and that's the whole thing about, as you say, history. Uh, it's you got to snap your fingers and make a decision. And you don't think, okay, what are they going to think about this 20 years from now? you got to think the here and now. Well, what am I going to do? And sometimes politicians get it wrong. Uh, you know, let's face it, we've seen dozens of examples of that going on. Uh, and, and sometimes, as you say, they'll bastardize the intelligence they get to try to justify that decision. Um, and, and, you know, that's on the politicians, not on the people that are, are gathering the information. And I think what we're hearing about these, the, the Chinese involvement here, the, the, the foreign uh, interventions in, in what seems to be happening here, there seems to be some legitimacy to that. And we don't know how deep it is and, and, and how effective it is right now. But I, I don't hear anybody saying, no, it doesn't happen. Well, well, exactly. And so, you know, first of all, you, you know, Bill, when you, you work in those with your law enforcement, security intelligence, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. 
If you do something and it turns out wrong, you get blamed. If you don't do something and something goes wrong, you get blamed. But yeah, more specifically to the Chinese intelligence, you've seen the leaked documents. I've seen leaked documents in the Globe and Mail. I'm familiar with that kind of reporting. It's very similar to reporting that I would have done at CSIS. This is pretty damning information. And I think that, you know, CSIS would have been very careful um, in creating this product to make sure the sources were, were reliable, they're confirmed, they're corroborated from multiple sources. I think that, you know, this, this is a smoking gun in, in every sense of the word here, that China definitely interfered in our elections. They definitely co-opted diplomats uh, to do so. They may have, in fact, co-opted some Canadians to do so. You can't just say, pretend this doesn't exist. Uh, you can't question intelligence. Well, the intelligence isn't uh, evidentiary in nature. Who cares? The, the information is there. It's concrete. It's damning. And the government should be, instead of pointing the finger at CSIS and saying, well, your intelligence isn't good, why isn't the government doing more about this? I mean, why aren't we expelling Chinese diplomats who did this? I mean, they don't have a right to be on our soil, Bill. And that action is not consistent with diplomatic practices. So why haven't Chinese diplomats been asked to leave? Well, yeah, they'll reciprocate and punt our diplomats from Beijing. That's fine. That's the way the game works. But for the government to sort of turn us around and, and pretend that, you know, the intelligence is the problem, the intelligence is not the problem. The government and action on Chinese interference going back 30 years, that's the problem as far as I'm concerned. Well, and, and that's starting to come to light now, and, and you and I have talked about that over the last four or five years in particular, uh, even going back to the Huawei situation. And I don't mean yep. Meng Wang. I'm, I'm talking about uh, whether or not they were going to adopt Huawei here for the 5G. And we were the last, I think, nation in the G7 to finally say no thanks. Uh, and everybody else, as you articulated, and I know you put this in your blogs too, Australia, the UK, the United States were saying, Canada, no, don't do this. And we still hesitated. So uh, if there's any blame to be apportioned here, you got to look at the inaction of government over the years and say, well, you know what, you, you let this happen, really, and you let it fester. Well, and I'm glad you raised the other partners, Bill, within the Five Eyes, the Americans, the Brits, and the Australians, and the New Zealanders, for those who remember they're still in there. I'm really worried at this point that they're looking north of the 49th parallel and asking questions within their own agencies and organizations and saying, what is happening in Canada? Here's a clear situation where good intelligence has been provided to a government about egregious foreign interference in our, in our democratic electoral process, and the government's dithering on it. Like, you know, if the Americans had this intel, they would have acted on it immediately. So would the Brits and probably the Australians as well. My concern, and this is purely speculative on my part, so I don't want to, you know, come across as uh, being predictive or an alpha crystal ball, but I'm very concerned that our very close partners in the Five Eyes, and this is the this is the premier club of intelligence gathering, Bill. It's been around since the Second mm-hmm. World War, that maybe some of our very close partners are beginning to question our reliability as, as, as a member of the Five Eyes if we can't protect our own selves from interference by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, are we worth working with? And I'm not saying the written alliance is going to fall tomorrow. It's not. But I think some very un- un- uncomfortable questions are being raised in, in capitals around the world. And I'm hoping this message is being sent to the Trudeau government. You guys better start playing the game that the way it's supposed to be played and not make this a purely political issue because this is serious. And if you know if you want to be in 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 the game with the big boys like us for, for you know going forward, you might want to start paying more attention to this and taking the action you're supposed to. Yeah, and and well, the classic example of that, of course, is is the the formation, of course, of the uh, the alliance now that's looking after the concerns yep. about China and the South China Sea. Yep. Uh, Canada wasn't even invited 
to, to no. join that. They weren't invited to the meetings either. Uh, which should is, have been a is, message to the Canada that the Pacific Power weren't invited. Look, yeah. the UK's in there. Uh, last time I checked, Bill, my, my map, UK doesn't have a Pacific presence, whereas we do. And the fact that we weren't invited it speaks volumes as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and that's that's the takeaway to this whole thing, isn't it? I mean, Canada's got to get their act together, and they've got to you know take the the rose-colored glasses off and understand that exactly what's going on here. And this is not this has been going on for a long, long time here. And I know even in the budget yesterday, they talked about forming some committee that's going to try to prevent foreign interference. Well, I don't know if you need a committee. I think what you need is to uh, use the facilities and use the the, the tools that we already have here, because they uh, the other countries seem to think we were effective. At least we used to be, anyway. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that new committee bill. And my immediate reaction to that was, why are you spending money on a yet another committee? Why don't you just give that money to CSIS and the RCMP? They can they can acquire more resources in terms of women and men to work as investigators, as law enforcement officers, to gather more information, to prove to the government this exists. No, we're going to punt it to a committee to look at it. I don't know about you, Bill. Um, I've been on committees uh, a lot, many times in my life. And is there anything more well, I won't say useless, but more frustrating than being on a committee. But again, it's my earlier point. This is the government's attempt to put, to kick this this ball down the, the field, and in hopes that someone else will deal with it later on. It's it's not effective. Uh, it's not necessary, and it just points again to one more instance. And you and I have talked about it on many occasions. A government that doesn't take threats to national security seriously, it doesn't take intelligence seriously. And so, as, as a former member of the community, I'm, I'm really kind of saddened to see the government do this. And and I know that you know there's 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 evidence here. The work that CSIS has done and these documents that have been leaked, at least the portions of them leaked anyway, uh, we're never going to get eyes on these documents. I mean, that's just not the way the, the system works, nor should it really. But uh, as, as it just looks as, as if there are some people in government right now that are using that very fact that that's the information that we probably need to verify this is not going to be available to the public anyway, uh, as a bit of a, a, a cushion now to say, well, you know, we can we can get away with just kind of, you know, sitting here you know, stuck in neutral while everybody else is being active on this. It's a very, very frustrating situation. Uh, we're out of time. I have to leave it there for now. i got a lot more to talk about with this. No problem. Uh, so anytime, sir. This is going to be part one, I guess, Phil. We'll, we'll pick this I up later so. on, okay? Sounds good. Thanks so much for this. You betcha. Take Phil care. Gursky of uh, Morialis Threat and Risk Consulting, and of course, a former CSIS analyst. And that's, that's I think, the, one of the things that's, that's driving people crazy about this whole circumstance here uh, is, is the lack of information. And I just mean about the, the, inve- the involvement of foreign countries, because we already knew that existed and probably continues to exist. But what are we going to do about it? That's the question I think a lot of us are asking. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.